Well, um, good morning, everyone. Uh, what a great pleasure and privilege it is to worship on, on Easter morning. Um, so the text, the teaching text comes from uh, John chapter 11. If you guys can turn there in uh, your bulletins, page 4. It's a long story. So, you know, bear with me as I, I read the story. Hear now the word of God. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, The illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not, would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village and was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Then he said these things. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, 
come out. The man who had died came out, his, his hands and feet bound with linen stripes and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation only, but also also to gather into the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. This is the word of God. Well, today um, we're looking at uh, this story, which was a long story. And in many ways, it uh, anticipates and foreshadows the story of Easter. What is Easter? Easter is the death of death. right? Because Jesus died and rose from the grave, death is no more. Now, of course, we still die, but death has lost its power so that for those who are in Christ, one day, even death itself will be undone. And so we're going to take a look at the story, and we're going to look at it in three points. And so here's my outline. Number one, we're going to see the tears of Jesus. Number two, we're going to see the anger of Jesus. And then number three, we're going to see the, uh, the substitution of Jesus, okay? So one, tears, two, anger, three, substitution, okay? So let's begin. Number one, uh, the tears of Jesus. Now, this is a remarkable thing. Jesus comes to Bethany, and Bethany is the home of Lazarus and Mary and uh, Martha. And we're told that this is a family very near to Jesus' heart. In fact, John, who narrates this account, seems to go out of his way to emphasize again and again that Jesus loved this family, that they were his closest and dearest friends. But on that day, the day Jesus arrived was a dark day because Jesus came and Lazarus has been dead for four days. And uh, Jesus comes to Mary and Mary says, Lord, if only you had been here only you had been here, I know that my brother would still be alive. And Jesus is so overcome with emotion and grief that he can't even speak, right? You see that? He can't even speak. He's weeping. And the only thing he manages, manages to say is, where have you laid him? And the weeping there, the, the Greek word there for weeping is not a weak word. It's not like a single silent tear was falling on Jesus' cheek, you know? But the word weeping is a very fulsome word, and it means sobbing. It means loud wailing. You know, Jesus is experiencing intense grief. Now, that's remarkable. And it's all the more remarkable when we consider everything that Jesus knows. Jesus knows why Lazarus has died, right? He knows the reason and the purpose, something that none of us know when we face death, right? But more than that, Jesus knows that in a few short minutes, he's going to turn that funeral 
into an incredible celebration. Right? He knows in just a few short minutes, Lazarus will be alive and breathing and everyone will be jumping up and down with joy. And yet, Jesus is so overcome with emotion and he's weeping. So the question is, why the tears? Why is, why is Jesus weeping? And the answer is because Jesus is perfect love. He will not close his heart even for a moment but he allows the fullness of the tragedy and the sadness to enter into his heart, the death of his dear friend. You see, sometimes we think that if we really had faith, there would be no tears. Uh, I was reading an article recently in Time magazine, uh, and it's the story of this prominent pastor who, uh, who relates the story of when he was a child, his grandfather died. And because he grew up in a fairly conservative Christian home, uh, no one was allowed to grieve, right? Because it was seen as a sign of a lack of faith. And so, uh, you know, the, his grandfather was heaven. Everyone was supposed to be happy, right? So no tears, no sadness was allowed. And this pastor relates how, as a child, he found it very difficult to reconcile this tremendous sadness that he felt within with this very rigid outward rule. And it was a very jarring experience for him and, and it sort of turned him against that tradition. But if you look at Jesus, Jesus shows us that the good and right response to death is weeping. It doesn't mean that you have no hope. It doesn't mean that uh, you have no faith or that you don't trust God. But simply that it is part of the human experience that death is the greatest sorrow there is. You see, sometimes... People think that, you know, if you believe in the resurrection, somehow you're walled away, you're protected, you know? You're insulated from the tragedy and the pain and suffering of death. Absolutely not. Quite the opposite. Let me make the argument that because we believe in the resurrection, we feel all the more deeply the tragedy of death. Because we know all the more deeply what death is not supposed to be. And so I want you to look at Jesus, and this is the first point, just look at Jesus and look at how emotional he is in his grief, and yet it is not without hope. And that leads me to my second point, which is the anger of Jesus. And uh, here we run into the problem of translation, because uh, if you look at verse 33, and this is very important uh, for this point, I want to direct your attention there. It says, when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, I know that it doesn't say it in the text, but in the original Greek text, Jesus is angry. And uh, what's going on is that the word that's translated greatly troubled is the Greek word embrimaomai. It's a very important word for our discussion, okay? Embrimaomai. And it's a word that's not found very frequently uh, in the New Testament, but it occurs, uh, of, it's a very common word in the larger Greek literature. So we have a fairly good idea about what it means, okay? And embry maomai literally means snorting, okay? It means snorting as in like what an animal does or what a horse does. And it's a word metaphor meaning deep anger and rage. And 
The thing is, nearly all the translations kind of soften up the language. And the reason is, to be really frank with you, is because the translators are uncomfortable with this idea of Jesus being angry. Particularly at a funeral, it's, they feel like it's almost inappropriate or, or, or unbecoming of Jesus. Um, and so they dial back the language and they say that Jesus was deeply moved and greatly troubled. But if you look at all the commentaries, right, and I've, you know, spent some time, you know, I've read all the major commentaries. I looked at Leon Morris, I looked at D.A. Carson, I looked at Ramsey Michaels, who wrote this ridiculously huge 1,200-page commentary. And then I also looked at Craig Keener, who wrote an even more monstrous 1,600-page commentary. Look what I do for you guys, you know. And all of these commentaries agree, all of these commentaries agree that Embry Maomai, without a doubt, means anger. In fact, I love the way one commentator put it. He says, it is lexically indisputable that it means anger. And in fact, the commentators will tell you that the language there is actually even stronger than that because John throws in a second word, and the word there is translated uh, greatly troubled, but it's the Greek word terasa, which means to shake. Right, like shake as in your body shaking. And so when you couple those two words together, embry maomai terasa, what you have then, what John is telling us is that Jesus was shaking with rage. He was quaking with fury. What was Jesus so angry at? Was it Mary and Martha? Was it at the crowds or maybe was it at himself? No. Jesus was angry at death itself. Jesus was mad at the grave that held Lazarus. And here we come to the heart of the matter because the question is what is death? What is the meaning of death? This is the central question that we have to answer if we are to make any sense of the story of Easter. And it's really the most important question if we are to make sense of the human experience. What is death? Because the world tells us a very different story. The world tells us that death is a natural part of life. Have you ever heard anyone say this? I think people say this to help us to cope. You know, They say, death is just natural. And so there's nothing to get upset at. Upset at. Um, it's just a, a part of the process of life. And you see this again and again in the movie. So, for example, Star Wars. There's this scene in Episode 3 where Anakin Skywalker has this, uh, is, is filled with dread because he has this vision of his wife Padme dying. And so he goes to Yoda, right? And what does Yoda say? What is his counsel? Yoda says, death is a natural part of life, Right? He says, uh, therefore, mourn them not, right? Miss them not. I know that's a terrible Yoda impression, right? Um, And what is Yoda saying? Yoda is saying, Anakin, why are you so distressed? Even if Padme dies, it's okay because it's natural. It's just natural. Or what about Forrest Gump? There's this scene where a forest hears uh, uh, news that his mother is sick. And so he jumps off the shrimping boat. Do you remember that scene? Right? He runs home, and he sees his mother lying there in bed, and he just looks absolutely shell-shocked. Right? And he says, you know, Mama, what's going on? 
And she says, sit down. And she says, I'm dying. And she says, but death is just a part of life for us, right? It's my time. <laughs> or what about the Lion King? There's this scene where uh, Mufasa, right, is uh, taking young Simba around and kind of teaching him the facts of life. And he's, and he's telling him about the, the great circle of life. And you know Mufasa is voiced by James Earl Jones, so uh, I will not do an impersonation. He's like impossible to impersonate. Uh, so let me say it with a straight face, okay? So Mufasa says to young Simba, death is just a part of life. When you die, your body becomes the grass. The grass feeds the antelope. And the antelope becomes food for the lions, and so it goes the great circle of life. And death is just a natural part of that. What are all of these movies telling us? That there is nothing unnatural about death. There is nothing to get angry about or upset about. That death is just part of the natural cycle, and it's almost beautiful in that way. There is no greater of a start of a stark difference between the world and Christianity than on this point. Because the Bible tells us that death is not natural. It is not the way it's supposed to be. It is an intruder. As Paul says in Corinthians, it is the enemy, our great enemy. We were not supposed to die. We were not supposed to grow old. We were not supposed to uh, decay and fall apart. God did not create us to die, but he created us to live forever. And so why is there death? There's death because it is a consequence of sin and rebellion. Do you remember in the garden what God said was the penalty for eating the forbidden fruit? Death. And Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And so death is not right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It is a violation of the deepest desire of our hearts, which is that love should last forever. Because when you love someone, right, what does your heart say? That that friendship and kinship should go on and on and on. That that relationship should never end. I want to share with you um, a story. Um, I have never uh, personally uh, experienced death. And uh, I know for that I'm very fortunate. You know, I'm very fortunate. Uh, but it won't always be the case. But let me share with you a story. Um, several years ago, uh, some of you know this, right, that Christina and I used to live in Boston. And uh, Christina got a job uh, in the summer. But the thing is that her job was in San Francisco. And so we had a discussion, and with some reluctance, we agreed that we were going to be separate for that summer. She was going to work in San Francisco, and I was going to stay in Boston with my job. Uh, one night, I had a dream. And in my dream, uh, Christina had gotten into a horrible car accident. And she died. And uh, I, in my dream, I was sitting in my pastor's house, dressed in a suit, and everyone around me had... Um, Everyone around me looked so sad. You know, they had these somber faces. And it was a funeral reception. And people were coming to me and holding my hand. And they were trying to express their condolences. You know, the sorrow that they felt. And then I woke up. 
And every, every, have you ever had one of those dreams where it's so vivid, you know? Where for a moment you're not sure if it was just a dream or if it's real. And so I turned to my side to see if Christina's still there, and she wasn't. And in that moment, I thought, she's really gone. She's really dead, you know? And my mind was racing, you know? And I was just trying to, like, understand what was going on. And, you know, I guess my brain finally started to kick back into gear. And I said, no, Christina is in San Francisco. You know, I don't remember any story about a car accident. No, she's alive. But for that moment, you know, it was the first time I really experienced the absolute possibility that Christina could die. And I sat up and I just started to cry, you know. I couldn't help it. I just started to sob and sob. And I would like to think that they were deep, manly sobs. But I just was crying because it just really struck me, you know, that I would never see Christina again. The possibility, you know, that I would never hold her hand, you know. I would never talk with her. I would never go on walks with her again and just have conversations about the day and the silliness of what happened. I would never hear her voice. I would never have another conversation. And the sadness of that just hit me, you know. And I realized that the great tragedy and evil of death is separation. Because the desire, the deepest desire of our hearts is that love should last forever. And so the story that John gives us here, right, the picture that he gives us, Embry Maomai, Tarasso, is that Jesus is standing there, his nostrils flared. He's like a bull snorting in anger. And he approaches the tomb, not sniveling in weakness, but roaring with rage like a fighter in the ring. Because Jesus has come to do battle with our great enemy, death. And that leads me to my third point, which is substitution. Now, the only way that Jesus can bring Lazarus out from the grave is if he is swallowed up into it. You see, because death says, if you draw Lazarus out, then I will draw you in. And Jesus says, then come and have me. Now, what am I talking about? What's going on? Well, if you look at the story and the way that it's told, okay, John, who narrates this account, is deliberately framing this story so that at either end, there's this talk of Jesus dying. Have you noticed that? So that in verse 8, the disciples do not want to go down. Why? Because they're afraid. They're saying, Jesus, your life is in danger. Don't you know that they're trying to stone you to death? And then all the way at the end in the last paragraph, we see the religious leaders plotting to kill Jesus. Now, at first, it seems kind of random. Like, what does this all have to do with the story of of the raising of Lazarus? But don't you see that John is deliberately framing the story because he's trying to tell us something. He's trying to tell us something important. And in order for us to understand that, we need to take a step back, and I need to give you a little bit of the historical background. And I do it with some reluctance because... You know, I don't want to break the flow of thought here, you know, but it's very important. It's, it's necessary, okay? So, so bear with me, okay? Don't let me lose you. Let me say it as simply and efficiently as I can, okay? During this time, the Jews are under Roman occupation. Now, the Romans 
were not that interested in direct rule. They much preferred that the land and the people, you know, recognize Roman sovereignty, send tribute, right, pay Roman taxes, and as long as the people did that, the Romans were happy to sort of delegate the nitty-gritty details of everyday governing to intermediaries, and in this case, it was the Jewish religious leadership. And so the religious leaders were basically Roman collaborators, you know, particularly uh, the, the religious council, the Sanhedrin, right? And so they were deeply compromised and very unpopular with the people. But here's the thing. In order for them to, to stay good with the Roman uh, overlords, right, it was, in order to keep their position, it was their job to maintain the peace. They had to make sure that the, no rebellion broke out among the people because if that happened, the Romans would come and crack some heads and everything would be ended. Now here comes Jesus. And he talks and acts like the Messiah, who is the long-awaited deliverer whom the people believed would overthrow the Romans. And so this presented a major problem for the religious leadership, right? What are they going to do with Jesus? And so they have him constantly monitor, monitored with spies. And they're constantly trying to discredit Jesus and trying to constantly you know, show him up. But the strategy backfires. You know, it's not working because every day Jesus seems to get more and more popular. Every day the crowds around him seem to get larger and larger. And so the tension is building, right? Things are coming to an edge. And then in John 11, Jesus gets word that Lazarus is dying. And the way that uh, John has framed this story is he's letting us know that this miracle sealed Jesus' fate. You see, because Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave, which is such a spectacular miracle, you know, and he did it in public, there must have been at least a hundred witnesses, and he did it in Bethany, a mere two miles from Jerusalem, the center of power, this sealed Jesus' fate. So that in verse 53, there all the way at the end we read, so from that day on, they, the religious leaders, made plans to put Jesus to death. It was a direct result of what had happened here. And Jesus knew this beforehand. That's why his disciples were pleading with him, begging him not to go down. Jesus knew that the only way he could raise Lazarus was to sign his own death warrant. And so in other words, and and can you not see it, right? It's an exchange. It's Jesus' life for Lazarus. And John here is giving us the perfect picture of the gospel. The gospel is an exchange. The gospel is substitution. Now, why do we need a substitute? Because remember, the wages of sin is death. And so therefore, the the sentence of death hangs over all of our heads. And the only way that Jesus could rescue humanity from the clutches of death is that he stands in our place as our substitute and takes the penalty of death for us. Several years ago, uh, I read a book called To End All Wars by Ernest, uh, Ernest Gordon. And it's the book that's very loosely the basis of the movie The Bridge on the River Kwai. And it's basically a memoir of his time uh, in the Pacific Theater in World War II. Now, you may not know this, 
But at the very beginning of World War II, the Japanese captured almost 100,000 British and other Allied troops. And what they did was they put these uh, POWs, right, prisoners of war, into these labor camps to work on the Burma Thai Railway, which was very uh, strategic for the Japanese. And it was basically like a concentration camp because they, they, they fed these uh, POWs very little food. I mean, people you know, were dying by the, hundred, by the tens of thousands. You know, they were being worked to death in the jungle. It's basically the Japanese version of the Holocaust. If you see photos of those labor camps, they look like Jewish Holocaust victims. And uh, Ernest Gordon uh, tells the story of his time in, in these labor camps. And he says that because of just the absolute brutal way that uh, these camps were run, it was just so you know, ruthless and so uh, harsh and so brutal that everyone you know, it was basically just trampling on one another, you know? Everyone was just stabbing each other in the back to survive, just to live, you know? Because if your fellow prisoner died, so much the better for you because there's more food for you, more resources for you. And so he says that one of the things that the prisoners decided to do in his particular camp is they decided in order to stave off uh, boredom and tedium and sort of introduce some civilization is they decided to start what he called a university. And so they called on the prisoners who had some kind of specialized knowledge to teach these classes, right? And to give these lectures. And so it was kind of like university, you know? It was very popular. And what happened was there was a couple of Christians uh, in the camp, and they decided that what they were going to teach was the Bible. And so they basically held Bible studies. And Ernest Gordon says that these were by far the most popular classes in the labor camps. And... uh, by the way, you know, he, he started out as a non-Christian, and through this experience, he, had, he converted and became a Christian. But he says that something remarkable happened in those camps. He says that as people attended these Bible studies, scores and scores of POWs converted to Christianity. And this radical transformation happened in the, in the labor camps. There was all of a sudden a spirit of self-sacrifice and charity and love And people were, you know, even talking about showing love and forgiveness to their Japanese captors. And he relates this one particular story to make his point. And when I I read it, it always stuck with me. It's so poignant. He says, one day, he and several of the prisoners were sent on this work detail in the jungle. They were supposed to work on a section of the railway. And as usual, at the end of the day, the guard would count up the tools. And on this particular day, the guard announced that a shovel was missing. And so the Japanese commander lined up all of the prisoners, and he just began to scream and rant and and demand that the prisoner who was responsible step forward and take his punishment. And he said in broken English, unless you do this, he said, all die, all die. No one stepped forward. Now, this sent the commander into a furious rage, and he just started to scream all the more. And to show the prisoners how serious he was, he raised his rifle to the head of the first soldier, of the first prisoner. And at that moment, one of the prisoners stepped forward, and standing at attention, he said, I did it. And the commander just unleashed all of his pent-up anger and hatred, and with the butt of his rifle, he beat that prisoner to death right there. And when the company had returned back to the labor camp, 
another count of the tools were made, and it was discovered that, in fact, no shovel was missing. And everyone realized at that moment that that man had sacrificed his life for his friends. And that, I think, is a picture of what Christ has done for us. You see, the sentence of death was hanging over our heads, and Christ stood up in our place as our substitute, and he took the blows of death for us as our substitute. And that's why Jesus says in our passage, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Have you ever thought what a remarkable statement that is? Jesus does not say, I know the way to life. He does not say, I know how to be resurrected. He says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. There is no other way except through me. And whoever believes in me, for them, the sting of death is no more. And death will be but like falling asleep until one day I take their hand and I wake them up into new life. That is the gospel. The gospel is not that you have lived a good life and at the end, God will place you on the scales of justice and God will say, you know, on the whole, you're a pretty good person. You certainly do not deserve death and hell. My friends, that is a false hope. That is a lie the world has pulled over your eyes because the Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray and the wages of sin is death. And so the sentence of death hangs over all of our heads and the only salvation, the only rescue is in Christ and Christ alone. And so the gospel is that Jesus lived the life we should have lived and he died the death we should have died and all who believe on him will never perish but into them will have eternal life. That's the gospel. And so Easter is the story of the death of death. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how can we neglect so great a salvation? Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth that you are the resurrection and the life, that you alone can save. And we pray now that as we come to the Lord's table, for this tremendous grace that you give us, we would would remember the gospel that you love us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.